The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 14th chapter. Lord to you, Lord. Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Who does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going after out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot, then while the other one is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, O Christ. Someone once said, it's not what you know that will cause, it's not what you don't know that will cause you trouble but rather what you know that just ain't so that can cause irreparable harm to you. All of us are afflicted by ideas which we've learned over the years, accepted over the years, our mindset, if you were, and some of our mindset is good, some of it is bad, some of it is innocuous, and some of it is self-defeating. As an example of what I mean by innocuous, if you were born where you came of age in around the 1960s and your parents said, you're sounding like a broken record, people know what you're talking about. However, if you ask somebody born after 1980 or tell them you're sounding like a broken record, they're going to scratch their heads. They don't know what a broken record is. So some of the things we think are innocuous. But one thing that we have in our mindset that is very dangerous is this idea that comes in five words. You get what you deserve. You get what you deserve. So therefore, if you're rich, you deserve it. If you're poor, you deserve it. If you're a minority and harassed by the majority, you deserve it. If you have an alternate lifestyle and people make your life difficult, you deserve it. If you're sick or dying through no fault of your own, you're surely evil and deserve this as a punishment. Think about how perniciously bad that idea is. I hate to say it, but religion often gets caught, caught up in this concept that you get what you deserve. For example, Judaism in the time of Jesus. 
really understood that people were punished by God and therefore if you had something bad happen to you, it was either your fault or your parents. We see this most precisely in John's Gospel when Jesus is at the temple and there's a man born blind and he's wandering around the temple trying to make his way and Jesus' disciples say to him, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? He deserved to be born blind, in other words, because either he or his parents sinned. But Jesus says no. Neither he nor his parents sinned, but rather he is here so that the glory of God may be manifest in him. And Jesus cures him of his blindness. Jesus puts to rest that idea that sin and things that happen to us are linked. If something bad happens to you, it's not because of your sinfulness. It could possibly be partially, but the idea of, of tragedy, the idea of bad things happening, cannot be with a one-on-one link to what we're doing wrong. It's much more complex than that. Well, I wish to say that Christianity was immune from this idea, but we're just as, as bad sometimes as everybody else. Human nature is such that we want to think that when good things happen to us, we really deserve it, and when bad things happen to other people, it really, they really deserve it. Many still attribute these struggles of good and evil to how good or bad you are as a person. But yet if we think about it, sometimes in life we don't get what we deserve. We don't get, some of us get more than what we deserve, some of us get less. And the relationship between what we get and whether we deserve it is extremely complex. In our first lesson for today, Philemon and his wife Afia are the first, are the kind of Christians that any church would want to have as members. They were wealthy, most likely because they were involved in the woolen industry that that Colossae was famous for. As a matter of fact, the wool, the wool cloth from Colossae was so famous, it was durable and it was uh, outstandingly woven that it commanded a high price. So the Colossians actually were fairly wealthy people. Here were Philemon and his wife, and they were not only good Christians, but they were generous to a fault, not only to the congregation itself in Colossae, but also to the church at large, including the church in Jerusalem. They were also wealthy enough that they opened their villa to the congregation to worship on Sunday. There were no churches at that time, so that Christians either had to worship in the local synagogue, that is, if they weren't chased out, or worship in the home of a wealthy 
member, such as here. And certainly for Philemon and Afia, they welcomed Christians into their home. They were all, by all accounts, great Christian leaders, perfectly fine Christians. Running such a large villa as, as Philemon and Afia probably did, they needed a lot of power, a lot of energy. Now, they didn't have electricity, they didn't have steam power, so what did they did have? They had human power. They had servants, and more likely they had slaves. They relied on human power to get things done, to get the cleaning and the cooking and the serving all done. It's estimated that two out of every five people in the Roman Empire were slaves. That's 40%. So out of a congregation like this, probably about 15 people that are here right now would have been slaves back then. A large number. And these people were slaves because either they had been captured during wars that they, the Romans put on, or they had been born into slavery and their parents had not been able to buy themselves out of it. The Romans really made slaves' lives miserable. There were certainly enlightened slave owners, to be sure. But the Romans used slaves like we might have used animals in the past, or even used equipment now. They really pushed them hard. When you look at things like the, the roads that you still say now that are 2,000 years old, or the aqueducts, or the temples, they use slave laborers to produce those things. And they quite frankly didn't care whether the slaves lived or died, they were expendable. Rome made it clear that slaves had no benefits whatsoever and if a slave dare revolt or run away, they were faced with corporal punishment. For example, 70 years before Jesus was born, a gladiator slave named Spartacus, a fairly good warrior, and several of his other gladiator warrior friends got together, freed a lot of slaves, and began an army to uh, to fight the Romans and to win a space for themselves in the, in the Italian peninsula. And they at first did very well. They actually defeated a couple of Roman, uh, uh, couple of, of Roman legions that were sent after them. But finally Rome got tired of their, uh, of their fighting them and they sent in a huge army and killed off about 20 to 25,000 of them, and captured 6,000 of them as prisoners. They then took those 6,000 and crucified them, all in a line on a 20-mile stretch of the Affian Way, and left the bodies there to rot, to tell any other slave that looked upon these people that if they themselves dared revolt, this could be their fate. This was the fate 
of anybody who dared to get out of slavery. Our lesson for today from Paul is Paul's letter to Philemon, the shortest letter that Paul has written in a letter with just one purpose, to change Philemon's mind about slavery and specifically his mind about one slave named Onesimus. As the letter begins, we see Paul in one of his frequent imprisonments, most likely in the imperial city of Ephesus, about 120 miles from Colossae, where Philemon lives. After an initial greeting, Paul gets to the heart of his message. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that sharing your faith may be effective when you perceive all the good things that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement for your love, and the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, my brother. Paul here does two things. He first of all acknowledges all the good that Philemon and Aphia have already done because of their love for Christ and all his saints, Paul and others. But also for the things that he can do that are even greater than what he has already done. So for this end, Paul gets right to the point. While in prison in Ephesus, Paul has met Onesimus, a runaway slave whose name means youthful, and Paul makes a word play on Onesimus' name when he talks to Philemon about Onesimus. He begins by saying, I, although I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what I require, Paul says, I would rather appeal to your love. I, Paul, an old man, you could also say a presbyter, I, Paul, your presbyter, am now a prisoner for Jesus Christ. I'm appealing to you for my brother Onesimus, whose father I become during my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you. Remember, wordplay on useful. But now he is useful to you and me. I'm sending him back my own heart to you, that he may serve me in my own place, in your place, in the gospel, as I preach the gospel and am imprisoned for it. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, that this good deed may be done with your heart and not something forced. Here is the crux of the matter. Rather than punishing this runaway slave, a punishment which could include death, Paul asked Philemon to change his mind about slavery. Do not see Onesimus as a slave anymore, but rather as a brother in Christ, and not as a useless slave who needs the punishment. After all, as Paul constantly tells other Christians, and now he tells Philemon, that in Christ there are no distinctions between slave and free, male and female, Jew and non-Jew. 
Those distinctions have been blasted away by Jesus, our Lord. We are now all brothers and sisters in Christ, heirs of the same, the same promise of Jesus that we are made in the likeness of God and share in God's love. Therefore, Paul specifically says to Philemon, if you consider me your brother and partner, consider, consider Onesimus as your brother and partner in my stead. And if you really want remuneration, I'll pay you. But I remind you that, that none of us can repay the cost that it cost Jesus to die for us. So refresh my heart, dear brother, by making this gift of Onesimus to not only myself, but to the church. Well, the letter ends on this positive note. We don't know what actually happened. We don't have a following letter saying, thank you for sending Onesimus. Frederick Buechner, one of my favorite uh, preachers, in looking at this passage says that we don't know what actually happened. But the one thing we do know is that several years later, after Paul has died, a saint named Ignatius was also in jail. And he appeals to a bishop that the bishop may send him some refreshment while he is in in prison, sending him some people to help him in his imprisonment. And the letter is very much written like this letter to Philemon. And the bishop's name is Onesimus. There's no proof that the same slave boy, grown old and venerable as a man of the mitre, says Sabikner, is the same one. But it's very tempting to believe that he was. And if so, Paul's heart was refreshed not only once, but twice by the actions of Philemon. Well, the story of Philemon can become a feel-good for us, a story that we can leave just there saying, oh, isn't that great? Philemon did what, what Paul wanted to do, and he's an example of what Christ really wants us to do as brothers and sisters in Christ, where we see no distinction between male and female, Jew and non-Jew, slave and free. But if this story is to have any meaning for us, if this letter is to have any meaning for us, the question is, how do we see it today? Do we believe that you deserve what you get. That if you're rich, you deserve it. If you're poor, you deserve it. If you're sick, well, you did something wrong. If you're, if you're prejudiced against, well, you know, that's just too bad. That's the way it is. Is that what we really want to think? First and most obviously for us, there cannot be any ethnic, ethnic distinctions in Christ. No Jew nor Greek, as Paul would say, but no black nor white nor Asian nor Hispanic, you name it. 
If we are truly all brothers and sisters in Christ, those ethnic distinctions cannot make a difference. We're far removed even from the time when Lutherans here in America used to determine themselves with a hyphen. Um, German-American, or Swedish-American, or Norwegian-American, or Danish-American. No, we are all Americans, and we are all together in Christ. So number one, there cannot be the distinction of race. None of us cho chose to be who we were. We were born of parents of which we had no choosing. There's an old adage, if you really want to be successful, choose the right parents. None of us had that choice. And the most successful we can be is to see that all of us are brothers and sisters in Christ without distinction. Secondly, we are to be brothers and sisters with no gender distinctions in Christ. We are brothers and sisters equal parts of the body, and we all need to be together in the body of Christ. And just as we know that the diversity of the body is, is, is a gift, we also know that it's not a single division between male and female, but rather there's diversity in our understanding of gender, including gender identity and gender orientation. We need to see that orientation is a gift from God as well, just as much a part of the diversity of God as the diversity of skin tone. We should not be prejudiced against one another because of our gender or gender orientation. Lastly, slavery and freedom today should be considered in not literal freedom and not literal slavery, but rather in economic terms. Things in this country were, even though there were hard issues with, with race and gender in the 60s and 70s, there was much better equality of, of, of economics than there are now. A whole swath of America lives from paycheck to paycheck without other benefits. Many people in this country, as well as around the world, lack things that we took for granted, like clean running water or nutritious food whenever we want it. There are challenges to human treatment in the world and specifically here. For example, in Jackson, Mississippi, there is a crisis with the water that they have. Jackson is primarily African-American. All the white people have fled this, the center of the, the city and, and live out in the suburbs. So the city itself is primarily African-American and poor white people. The water system has been neglected for years. And now, because of flooding, it's totally inoperable. And they have to make emergency repairs. And they have to give out bottled water because the water is not fit to drink. And yet, in 2020, 
2020. The state auditors found that as much as $94 million in funds that were supposed to go to the poor, to help the poor, including things like helping these improvements, actually went to the pockets of prominent uh, Mississippians, including the football great Brett Favre, who was paid $1.1 million out of those poverty funds to give lectures which he did not attend. Tell me how he and the other rich people in Mississippi that took that money got what they deserved and how the poor got what they deserved. We need to be concerned about economic slavery in our day. Wesley White is a Methodist pastor from Wisconsin. In looking at this passage just a couple of years ago, he, he wrote these words, and I'd like to end the sermon with them. While we are not able to see our own blind spots that later generations will look back upon and wondering why there wasn't much made of our slavery, we at least have to try to understand what is going on in our world. And through our, through our new eyes, see our prejudices and ask ourselves, what shall we do about them? Will it be another round of crusades? Will there be tribal genocides? Or will our hearts refresh Jesus, just as Philemon's heart refreshed Paul's? May it be that as we see those things around us, that keep saying to us, you get what you deserve, we are able to speak back and say, no, in love, we get what God wants us to get because we all work for the good of all of us, to treat others as we wish to be treated, till we all meet at Jesus' feet. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.